Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. You're listening to Closing Bell in Progress. That's really the, the thinking there. Is we, you know, these are fairly well understood channels, interest sensitive, uh, and, and basically across the economy, we'd like to slow demand so that it's better aligned with supply, give supply at the same time time to recover, and get into a, a, better, you know, a, a better alignment of supply and demand, and that over time should bring inflation down. And I'll say again, though, uh, you know, we don't have a, a perfect crystal ball about the future, and we're prepared to use our tools as needed to, to restore price stability. You know, with, with, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, without price stability, there, you really can't have a sustained period of maximum employment. It's, it's, it's our, one of our most fundamental obligations is to <clears throat> maintain and restore, in this case, price stability. So we're very committed to that. Of course, the plan is to, is to restore price stability while also sustaining a strong labor market. That is our intention, and we believe we can do that. But we have to restore price stability. Okay, let's go to Scott Horsley at NPR. Uh, thanks, and I apologize if the, this covers some of the same ground you just you just talked about, uh, Mr. Chairman. I, I think I missed some of your answer there, but I, I have a follow-up question on the on the labor force. Uh, we have seen some gains in the prime age workforce in the last few months. I wonder what you anticipate when it comes to some of the older workers as the health outlook has has changed. Are we going to see more recent retirees following Tom Brady back in the workforce and? What would that mean for wages and inflation? It's hard to say. You know, the, the, what, we, what we saw in the last cycle was that over the course of a long, steady expansion, labor force participation outperformed expectations. And that was just a, you know, it was, it was a tight labor market, but it, wasn't, it was nowhere near as tight as this labor market, but it was a tight labor market. And so people stayed in the labor force longer. It wasn't so much people coming back in the labor force after retirement. That's not something that, hap- that happens in the aggregate very much. But so that's what was happening. And, you know, more labor force participation is tremendously welcome. And, of course, our policy does not in any way preclude that. This, this is a situation where wages have moved up at the highest rate in, in a very long time. And... People are able to quit their jobs and move to better paying jobs in the same industry or different industries. So it's a really attractive labor market for people. And once, you know, as we get past COVID well and truly, it becomes an even uh, more attractive one. So we hope that that will lead to more labor supply. That's a good thing for the country. It's a good thing for people. And, and it also will, re- we think, help relieve some of, the, uh, some of the wage pressures that do put inflation more at risk. That last part is... is uh, you will, we'll have to see whether empirically it winds up, works out that way. But you know, in principle, it ought to help with inflation as well. It's not the only thing we're looking for, though, from inflation. We're looking for help from another different, a number of different uh, uh, places, and, and most importantly, from our own policy. Okay, let's go to Rich Miller at Bloomberg. 
Thank you, um, Michelle, and thank you, Chair Powell. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm having some communication problems, so I, I've missed some of uh, the stuff you've said, and my apologies if this has been asked. Um, um, since the FOMC met in last January, uh, financial conditions have tightened markedly. Uh, equity prices down, treasury yields up, bond spreads risen, yield curve has flattened a lot, and even further this today, dollars up. Uh, is that welcome? And would you like to see more in order to achieve your goals? Thank you. So as you, as you know, policy works through financial conditions. That's how it reaches the real economy it, it, by just the mechanisms you mentioned. And um, remember that the, the, the financial conditions we had uh, for the last couple of years were a function not only of very aggressive and uh, appropriately so fiscal policy, but also highly accommodative monetary policy. The, the monetary policy settings that we put in place at the worst parts of the pandemic. So it, it is very appropriate to move away from those. And yes, that will lead to some tightening in financial conditions in the form of, of higher interest rates and, and, and just the sorts of things. <clears throat> We're not targeting any, any one or more of those things, but financial conditions generally <clears throat> should move to, to a, a more normal level so that we, because we know the economy no longer needs or wants these very highly accommodative uh, uh, this stance, which, you know, so it's, it's time to move to a more normal setting of financial uh, conditions. And we do that by moving monetary policy itself to more normal levels. When, when you, you say, say move to, to a more, more normal setting for financial conditions, that, that suggests to me that you want financial conditions to tighten further from where we are now. Did, am I drawing the right inference from that? Well, yes. So I would say <clears throat> we look at a broad range of financial conditions. And, and of course, when we tighten monetary policy, we do expect that they will adjust in sync over time with monetary policy. It's not any particular financial condition, but a broad range of financial conditions. They will reflect to some extent, they reflect any number of things. But yes, we, we need our policy to transmit to the to the real economy. And it does throw so, so through financial conditions, which means as we tighten policy, or remove accommodation so that it's at least less accommodative, that broader financial conditions will also be less accommodative. Thank you. Just a little housekeeping note. Those of you in this call may be having some tech issues. If so, I understand the broadcast is coming through clearly on www.federalreserve.gov. So you might go there for the audio. And now we'll go to Gene Young. Hi, Chair Powell. Um, I wanted to ask about the balance sheet discussion you've had at this meeting. Can you give us any more details? Um, did you discuss whether to cap um, runoffs and or whether to increase those caps over what period, if, if there were any details? Yes, thank you for asking. <clears throat> so at our meeting today and yesterday, we made excellent progress toward agreeing on the parameters of a plan to shrink the balance sheet. And I'd say we're now in a position to finalize and implement that plan so that we're actually beginning runoff at a coming meeting. And that could come as soon as our next meeting in May. That's not a decision that we've made, but I would say that that's how, that's how well uh, our discussions went in the last two days. Um, uh, so a couple things just to add. We'll, we'll be mindful of the broader financial and economic context, context when we make the decision on timing. And we always want to use our tools to support macroeconomic and financial stability. We want to avoid adding uncertainty to what's a, a highly uncertain situation already. So all of that will go into the thinking of the timing around this. In terms of the, I, I, um, 
I would say this. I don't. I, I don't want to get too much into the details because we're we're literally just finalizing them. Um, but the framework is going to look very familiar to people who are familiar with the last uh, uh, the, the last time we did this. Um, but it'll be faster uh, than than we than the last time, and of course, it's much sooner in the cycle than last time. But it it will look uh, it will look familiar to you. And um, I, I would also say that there'll be uh, I, I'm sure there'll be a uh, a more detailed discussion of our of our uh, in the in the minutes to our meeting that come out in three weeks, where I expect that it will lay out you know the, pretty much the parameters of what we're looking at, which I think will look quite familiar. Thank you. Let's go to Michael McKee at Bloomberg TV. Well, Mr. Chairman, since uh, September of 2020, you've been operating on a monetary policy framework that let the economy run hot to bring unemployment down. Uh, that seems to be over. But I'm wondering how you would describe your reaction function now. Uh, what is it that the Fed is trying to do other than bring inflation down? In other words, is it uh, we're going to keep raising rates until it comes down to an acceptable level? Yeah, so I want to clear one thing up uh, again, and that is that nothing in our in our new framework or in the changes that we made has caused us to wait longer to to raise interest rates. What we said in the in the framework changes was, and this was really a reflection of what had happened for the preceding couple of decades. Actually, what we said was, um, if we see you know low low unemployment, high employment, but we don't see inflation then we're not going to raise rates till we actually see inflation. That's what we said. And that was the sense of it. There was no sense in which if we got a burst of really high inflation, we would wait to raise rates. That's simply not in the framework. In fact, quite the contrary. The, the, the framework is all about anchoring inflation expectations at 2%. So I do hear this, you know, that the framework, it really, I, I, we can't blame the framework. It was, it was a sudden, unexpected burst of inflation and then it was the reaction to it, and and it was what it was. But it was not in any way caused or related, uh, caused by or related to the framework. So come to today, um, you know, I, I think our our vision on this on the committee is very very clear. What we see is a a strong labor market. We see a labor market with a lot of momentum, great job creation, and we see the underlying economy strong. Uh, balance sheets are strong. Uh, yes, there are threats to growth from, you know, from uh, what's going on in Eastern Europe. Uh, and uh, but nonetheless, in the base case, we, uh, there's a pretty broad expectation of strong growth. But inflation is far above our target. And, you know, the the help we've been expecting and other forecasters have been expecting from supply side improvement, labor force participation, bottlenecks, all those things getting better. It hasn't come. And so we're looking now to using our tools to restore price stability, and we're committed to doing that. And you see that, I think, in the summary of economic projections, and you see that in the decision we make, and you will continue to see it in the decisions we make going forward. If I could follow up by asking, I guess what you'd call it is the Paul Volcker question. Uh, you don't think unemployment is going to rise significantly, but if it does, does that temper your desire to keep raising rates? Well, the goal, of course, is to restore price stability while also sustaining a strong labor market. We have a dual mandate, and they're sort of equal. Uh, but as I said earlier, you know, uh, price stability is a- an essential goal. In fact, it's a it's a precondition, really, for achieving the kind of 
labor market that we want, which is a, a strong and sustained labor market. We saw the benefits of a long expansion, a sustained labor market. It pulled people back in, and there, was, there were really no imbalances in the economy that threatened the long expansion. It just, the pandemic arrived. Just, it was just a completely exogenous event. So that's how we're thinking about it. We, we, we of course, want to achieve, uh, you know, price stability with a strong labor market. But we do understand also that really you can't have maximum employment for any sustained period without price stability. So we need to focus on price stability in particular, particularly because the labor market is so strong and the economy is so strong. We feel like the economy can handle tighter monetary policy. Thank you. Let's go to Brian Chung at Yahoo. Hopefully uh, no tech issues here on this front. Um, wanted to ask just kind of the broad question about uh, how you are communicating what the Fed's doing here today to the average American who might not be reading the dot plots or understanding what the SCP is. How is the 25 basis point hike today and then the signaling on future Fed policy going to address the inflation that they're feeling at the stores on a daily basis? Sure. So I, I guess I'd start by just assuring everyone that we're fully committed to bringing inflation back down and also sustaining the economic expansion. We do understand that that these higher prices, no matter what the source, have real effects on, on people's well-being. And really, high inflation takes a toll on everyone, but it's really especially on, on people who use most of their income to buy essentials like food, housing, and transportation, where, um, I mean, we've all seen charts that show if, if you're a middle-income person, you've got room to absorb uh, some inflation. If you're at the lower end of the income spectrum, it's very hard because you're spending most of your your money already on necessities and the, and the price is going up. So, But it's punishing for everyone. So um, it has been a difficult time for the economy, but, uh, but we do anticipate that, that inflation will move back down, as I mentioned earlier. Um, it may take longer than we like, but I'm confident that we'll use our tools to bring inflation down. And you ask about rates. So the way the way that works, I would explain, is as we raise interest rates, that should gradually slow down demand for the interest-sensitive parts of the economy. And so what we would see is uh, is demand slowing down, but just enough so that it's better matched with supply, and that brings that will bring inflation down over time. That's that's our plan. Thank you. Let's go to Jolene Kent at NBC News. Hi, Chair Powell. Thank you so much for taking my question and doing this today. Um, my question is a follow-up to what Brian just asked. What is your message to consumers out there who can no longer afford the basics due to this high inflation? Well, that is, yes, indeed. I mean, as I, as I just said, you know, I, I think we do understand very much, uh, and we very much take to heart that, that it's our obligation to to restore price stability. And um, you know, we've had price stability for a very long time and, and maybe come to take it for granted. But now we see the pain. I'm old enough to remember what what uh, very high inflation was like. And, um, you know, we're we're strongly committed as a committee to not allowing this this higher inflation to become entrenched and to use our tools to bring inflation back down to more normal levels, which our, our target is is two percent inflation. So we will we will do that. And um, I just would want people to understand that. And that's but the way we do that is by raising interest rates and by shrinking our balance sheet. And so financial conditions will become at the margin less supportive of, of, of various kinds of economic activity that will slow the economy. 
while also allowing the labor market to remain very strong. And, you know, the good news is the economy and the labor market are, are quite strong. And, and, and that means the economy, we think, can handle uh, interest rate increases. And as a quick follow-up to that, you know, obviously the Federal Reserve walking this very complicated fine line, uh, trying to avoid a recession. For the consumers out there who are worried about their jobs and a possible recession, what do you say to that? Well, I, you know, I, I say that our intention is to, uh, to bring inflation back down to 2% while still sustaining a strong labor market and that the economy is very strong. If you look at where forecasts are, um, you, you, people are forecasting growth that's, that's strong within the context of U.S. potential economic output. Uh, so, and we expect that to continue. And to the extent uh, the data come in different, then, of course, our policy will adapt. But uh, we do believe that our policy is the appropriate one for this forecast, and we believe that we can bring down inflation. We believe that we can do so while sustaining a, a strong labor market. The labor market is its not strong in the ordinary sense of the world. We, we haven't word. We, ha, we have not seen a labor market where there are 1.7 job openings for every unemployed person or where there, if you add, uh, uh, if you add uh, job openings to those who are employed, that's actually substantially a larger number than the size of the workforce, than the number of people who actually count themselves as in the workforce. So this is a situation where demand is higher than supply. And when that happens, prices go up. Uh, and, they, and so we, we need to use our tools to move supply and demand back. And we, we, don't, we, we don't think we need to do this alone. There will be other factors helping that happen. But we certainly are prepared to use our tools, uh, and we will. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go to Simon at The Economist. Uh, thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Chair Powell. Uh, sorry to take you away from inflation for one minute. Uh, may I ask about the, the sanctions on, on Russia and specifically the freezing of the central bank assets? Of course, that raises a similar risk for uh, other sovereigns around the world and their biggest companies potentially. Um, any concerns uh, about in the long term uh, how this might affect the dollar's status as the preeminent global reserve currency? Uh, and in the past couple of weeks, have you had to deliver any kinds of reassurance uh, to other central bankers around the world. Well, so, of course, central bankers around the world are generally very, very uh, in favor of, all of these sanctions. But let me, let me say this. Sanctions are really the business of the elected government, and that's, that's true everywhere. So the, the, the administration, the Treasury Department in particular, and other agencies, they, they, they create these sanctions. We're there to provide technical expertise, but they're not, it's not our decisions. And... and uh, uh, so I, I'm, I'm reluctant to comment on on sanctions really much because because again they're not they're not for us. We we have a very specific mandate, and these are these are really the province of of elected governments, as as I mentioned. So I'd have to leave it at that. So, sorry. Thank you. Let's go to Nancy Marshall Genzer at Marketplace. Hi, Chair Powell. Uh, thanks for taking the question. Um, you've been talking a lot about rising wages, which on the one hand is a great thing, but are we possibly seeing the beginning of a wage price spiral? So um, the way I would say it is this. We, we um, First of all, I, I would agree with the premise that wages moving up is a great thing. You know, it, it's, uh, that's how... Uh, the standard of living rises over time, and, it, and generally it's driven over long periods by rising productivity. Um, but um, 
what we have now, if you look at these, uh, the wage increases that we have, we look at a, uh, we're, we're blessed with a, a range of measures of wages that, that all measure different things. But right now they're all showing the same thing, which is that the increases, not the levels, but the increases are running at levels that are well above what would be consistent with 2% inflation, our goal, over time. And that may be, we don't know how persistent that phenomenon will be. It's very hard to say. Uh, and that's really, I think, the sense of your question about a wage price spiral is, is that something that's going to start happening and become uh, entrenched in the system? We don't, we don't see that. Uh, we, you can see, for example, in some sectors that got very high wage increases um, early on, those wage increases looked like they may have, have, have slowed down to a norm, normal level. But, it's, but it comes back to, you know, what, what I'm saying here, which is there, there is um, there's a misalignment of demand and supply, particularly in the labor market. And that is leading to wages moving up at ways that are they're not consistent with 2 percent inflation over time. And so uh, we need to use our tools to to, you know, guide inflation back down to 2 percent. And that would be in the context of, of an extraordinarily strong labor market. We, we, we think this, this labor market can handle, as I mentioned, uh, tighter monetary policy, uh, and, and the overall economy can as well. But, but yes, um, wages, wages uh, are moving up faster than is consistent with 2% inflation, but it's, it's good to see them moving up, but it wouldn't be sustainable over too long of a period to see them moving up that much higher. And that's because of this misalignment between supply and demand. We expect to get more labor supply. We did last time. We got more than we expected last during the last cycle. This time we've gotten much less than expected. So it's not easy to predict these things. But we do expect that we'll get people coming back in the labor market, particularly as COVID becomes less and less of a factor in, in many people's lives, uh, something we all uh, wish. Um, but th- So that's how we think about it. Thank you. And for the last question, we'll go to Don Lee at the LA Times. Hi, Chair Paul. Um, I think you said uh, to the Senate uh, earlier this month that, in hindsight, the Fed should have moved earlier. And it sounds like uh, t- today that uh, you don't think that the Fed is late. And I just wanted to uh, get uh, your clarification on that. And if it is, if you still think that uh, the Fed is behind the curve, how how much behind the curve is it? Right. So we are we are not um, we don't have the luxury of 2020 hindsight in actually implementing real real time decisions in the world. So uh, the you know so the the question is um, the, the the right question is did you make the right decisions based on what you knew at the time? But that's not the question I was answering, which is knowing what you know now. So I think if we knew now, of course, if we knew now that that these uh, supply blockages, really, and the inflation resulting from them in collision with, you know, very strong demand, if we knew that that was what was going to happen, then in hindsight, yes, it would have been appropriate to, to move earlier. Uh, obviously, it would be. But, but again, we don't, we don't have that luxury. And then, so, but that's a separate question from, from your other question, which is behind the curve. And, I, you know, I, I don't have the luxury of, of, uh, of, of looking at it that way. You know, we, we are... We are um, we have our tools, powerful tools, and the committee is very focused on on using them. We're acutely aware of the need to restore price stability, 
while keeping a strong labor market. And uh, what I saw today was a committee that, that, is, that is strongly committed to achieving price stability in particular and, uh, and prepared to use our tools to do that. We're not going to let high inflation become entrenched. The costs of that would be too high. And we're not going to wait so long that, that we have to do that. No one wants, no one wants to have to really uh, put restrictive monetary policy on in order to get inflation back down. So, frankly, it, it, the need is one of getting back up, getting rates back up to more neutral levels as quickly as we practicably can. And then moving beyond that, if that turns out to be appropriate. And as you can see, it is appropriate in, in the sense it, it, in, to, to people's SEPs. They, they do write down levels of interest rates that are above their, their estimate of the longer run neutral rate. And there's also a, ra- a range of estimates, too, as you will see if you look at the details of the SEP. But thanks for your question. Okay. okay. Thank, Thank you all. You all. Thank thanks, you. Mr. Chair. Thank you. Fed Chair Jay Powell making the first move to fight inflation. What a round trip for the markets. Take a look at the S&P 500 right now. We are in rally mode after the Fed chair gave commentary, said expects every meeting to be live. In other words, we could see ongoing interest rate hikes potentially at every meeting this year. A lot of it was priced in. S&P is up 1.6 percent. It fell just before the news conference and then rallied right back. The Dow also trading higher right now, NASDAQ as well. If you look at what's happened in the bond market, it really tells the story. You saw yields shoot up immediately on the back of the statement. I think that initial seven hikes per year, which was predicted by the dots or the forecast from the Fed, came as a surprise. But then as Fed Chair Powell started talking, those yields started coming a little bit lower. The dollar is weaker. Overall, taken as the market was pretty much expecting this. Joining me here at Post 9, former National Economic Council director and former Goldman Sachs president, Gary Cohn. Gary, welcome, especially after a big Fed day like this. Glad to have you by my side. Thanks for having me. It's great to be in person. Yeah, you, yeah it's great to have you here. So, so first, give us your first take on what we just heard from Powell and, and the market reaction. It, it looks like a little bit of a celebration. Well, I, I think you take two things out of this. Um, number one, I think the chairman kind of admitted he was behind the curve. And he came out. And he didn't he, say it. He said, no, let others make that I said judgment. he kind of admitted it. He admitted it by saying seven this year, four in the following years. So he put 11 rate hikes on the table. And to me, that was, without ever saying I'm behind the curve, saying, okay, we've got some work to do ahead of us. But I also think by doing that, he has got the market in a position where he is now, as you said, put him in a position where every meeting is live. But every meeting being live means that he doesn't necessarily have to raise rates at every meeting. But he has prepared the market for a position where he could, if he wants to, raise rates at every, at every meeting going forward. you think the forward. next surprise could be actually they don't raise interest rates at every well, meeting? Well, I, I think that's the position he's put us in right now. I think by saying every meeting's live and saying I'm going to raise at every, at every meeting, He's probably put that optionality on the table. That, that's how I interpret it. I think that's how the markets have interpreted it. And I think they're, they're interpreting is okay, he's admitting where we are. He's admitting where the, in, in many respects, he's admitting there behind the curve. He's admitting where inflation is. But why is, is that a good al- thing for the market? Although the inflation number they put out is not one that I think they can get right, to. Right, so they expect 4.1% at the end of this year. Yeah, I, I don't think they can get to that in any way, shape, what or form. What would be a more realistic target? They're, they're going to get help on inflation. They're going to get help on inflation because, as you know, the baseline is going to get better for them. As we get into the second half of this year, 
we started having a lot of wage and commodity inflation in the second half of last year. So when you look at the year-over-year numbers... The comps get better. The comps get dramatically better. So literally by doing nothing except moving the months forward, our year-over-year inflation numbers are going to start looking better and better, whether he raises rates or not. But you still think 4.1 is aggressive? So I think think anything with a four-handle is pretty, um, pretty aggressive. I think he'd be lucky to see something with a five handle. It's probably somewhere in the high fives, low sixes is what we're going to get. We still probably haven't seen the peak. You know, a lot of this volatility that's still in the system has not fed completely through. We've still got a lot of input inflation. Uh, We're going to see that on the commodity side. Everyone talks about oil. No one talks about the agricultural market. The agricultural market's probably more important than the oil. It is. It's more important than the oil market. The oil market, you can turn on, you can turn off. You get planting seasons in the, in the agriculture markets, and if you miss the planting window, it doesn't reoccur. So the oil market is a little bit different. We're just talking about can you ship it? Can you ship it out of certain places? Are you displacing oil from one market to another market? And I think we found that that's what's happening. That's why prices sort of resumed back to where it was sort of pre-Ukrainian uh, situation. Uh, but the wheat market is completely different. You know, the wheat market, we're going to get one planting season. Jay Powell can't do anything about the planning season. Dow's up 333 points. Gary, stay with us. Do want to get to Steve Leisman, who was part of Fed Chair Powell's news conference. Steve, what, what were your big takeaways? I would just like to say that I am sure that Fed Chair Jay Powell hopes Gary Cohn is right, and they do get some help from a lot of uh, uh, sources. That was part of Powell's presentation. Sarah, I was struck by the change in the forecast. I don't think you could help but being struck by that. The fact that... Uh, the, average, the median Fed official now sees restrictive rates for the next two years. And as I said in my question, the Fed still doesn't catch up. It, inflation still runs, according to their own forecast, above their target for two years while they're restrictive and above the neutral rate. So Powell kind of hinted at this, but you have to be on your mark now. As hawkish as this was, as the idea that a, a, a decision to hike the balance sheet is probably coming in May, Powell also was... You know, not shy about saying, hey, we might do some 50s. We might go faster. Take a, take a listen. We'll be looking at, at, the, at the data as they come in. We'll be looking to see whether the data show expected improvement on inflation. We'll be looking at the inflation outlook and making a judgment. And we'll be going, you know, each meeting is a live meeting. And if, if we conclude that it would be appropriate to raise interest rates more quickly, then, then we'll do so. Might be by the summer before they conclude that. Just take a real quick, quick look, Sarah, at the probabilities. What you see here is real firm uh, uh, com- uh, confidence that the Fed hikes, uh, the next four hikes, and a little bit less. But really today, Sarah, those seven hikes that are in the Fed forecast, those are priced in. And that December uh, hike was priced in almost immediately. Maybe Gary Cohen uh, is, is right about that. They don't get there, but that's where the market's priced right now, Sarah. Steve Leisman. Steve, thank you very much. So ultimately, how many think how many rate hikes do you expect this year? Uh, look, I, I don't know. It, it's really going to depend on where we head with inflation. I'm I still think we've got inflation in the system. I'm more concerned about the wage side of the equation. If you look at the data at the end of last month, we still had 11 plus 11.3 million unfilled jobs. The labor market is tight. Yep. When I'm out talking, to, Powell referenced it. Yeah, when yeah. we're out to, when I'm out talking to CEOs and, and we see it every day. Their biggest issue is hiring people and retaining people, and we see it in the data every day. And that's the biggest restraint on companies today. 
you know, you've also got the, the supply chain issues. The supply chain issues are not freeing up anytime soon. And so those getting are getting worse in China. Well, they, they, with COVID going on right now, we don't know what's going on. But clearly shutting down some of the cities, some of the important cities that export technology in the United States, it, it could be getting worse. Here's another thing that Powell said that struck me. He said that the economy was well positioned to deal with the rate hikes and said that recession risks are, quote, not particularly elevated. All signs the economy is strong, which is certainly soothing and reassuring to hear. But is it right? I agree with that. I agree. Look, consumer balance sheets were in great position coming. You in never this. think we're in. Gary, I, Gary texts me every time I'm on saying, "Stop talking about recession. We're not well, going into have recession." Well, have I been right so far? You've been right. Okay, good. So eventually, I may be wrong, You'll but I may change my mind. No, I mean it, it so, is. So look, consumer, against you. consumer balance sheets, corporate balance sheets are in really good position. And so you look at that. You look at wage growth, especially at the bottom quintile, bottom quartile. Wage growth has been very, very good. And there, as I said, there's jobs available. So if you look at what's going on and you look at what's driving the economy, I, I think we're still in very sound footing. I think Paul was right. We're in a, if we're ever going to be in a position to deal with increased rates, it is now. And believe me, it has been telegraphed. The market, as you said, you opened up talking about how the market was prepared for this. The market accepted it. The stock market's rallied. And rates are about where I, we, we would have thought they would be at the end of the day. Even with, though, the situation in Ukraine, the fact that Russia's cut off now from the global economy, which has stronger ripple effects on Europe, which is now risking a third recession in yep. the last two years and, and will certainly affect us. It Think will. we can handle it? Look, we, we can handle it. It's clearly going to have an impact. It's clear we, we, we can't discount what's going on in Ukraine. It's a horrible, horrific situation, and no one should discount it or put it to the side. But from an economic standpoint, we in the United States here are in relatively to very good position. We've got supply chain issues. We've got other issues. We've got the wheat issue. Ukraine, Russia is clearly in the middle of the wheat issue. They're in the middle of the nickel issue. They're in the middle of a bunch of the other yeah. commodity issues. They're all going to have an effect, and they're all inflationary effects. But we are in a strong enough position, and I think we're resilient enough to get through this. So does that mean that, that stocks are a good bet right now? The fact that they priced in all of these hikes that, that Powell so, is talking about, and you don't see us going so, into recession? So, so Sarah, that's a, a different discussion. So roll the clock back to when we went to easy monetary policy and we went to zero rate policy. We went to very accommodative. What happened? You're talking depths of COVID. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm talking before that, oh. way before that, way before that. Financial talking, go back years when, when they first started. What happened? We saw companies do very well and we saw their stocks do extraordinary well because there was no place for people to put their money. So we saw multiple expansion. You could see a company earn the same amount of money year one and year two, but their stock value would go up. What happened? The multiple of that company went up. It was going up because there was no real other alternative where to put your money. So we saw multiple expansion for many, many years. We are now starting to see the opposite effect. As we've started to talk about Fed tightening, and we're starting to see alternative places to put your money, risk-free rates going up, credit spreads widening, investors have alternative places to put your money. That's so what are we 20%. seeing? We're seeing multiple compression. Yeah. Multiple compression is painful. It really is painful. Companies are doing well. You, you see it every day. You, in the last couple of days, we've seen the airline industry talk about how they can sell every seat. You saw Uber talk about how, they, we how well really they're doing. We're demand. not hearing about companies telling us they're doing poorly. We hear about companies coming on telling you how well they're doing or pre-announcing. So companies are doing well, but we're seeing this multiple compression because the Fed is starting to go to a tightening policy. 
that means we have to figure out what multiple should be based on where monetary policy is going to be. That will determine whether you should buy stocks or not. Does that mean you wouldn't be in tech stocks right now, for instance? Not necessarily. I mean, tech stocks are, are, are a generalization. Some of, some of the tech stocks have gotten to relatively cheap multiples. Some are still at very high multiples. And you've got to look at growth rates. I think you've got to get back to looking at individual stocks and looking at where their multiples are, looking at their growth rates, looking at their historic multiples, and understanding what fair value is. Are you still in, heavily invested in, in stocks, or have you moved to cash? Um, I got out of some of my portfolio at the end of last year, maybe for the wrong reasons, maybe for the right reasons, but I definitely got out of some of my portfolio last year. Gary Cohn, great to have you here Sorry. on the Fed Day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bank stocks, take a look, significantly outperforming the market today. They like the sound of higher rates. Up next, we'll hear from an analyst on the best way to invest in that space following the Fed decision. And you may be surprised by his top picks. That story and more when we take you inside the market zone. And remember, you can listen to Closing Bell on the go. Following the Closing Bell podcast every day on your favorite podcast app, Dow is up 291. We've really rallied off the Fed news presser by Fed Chair Jay Powell. We'll be right back. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Up 318 on the Dow on this Fed Day. We are now in the closing bell market zone. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day with me. Plus, Wolf Research's Stephen Chuback on financial. Scott Wren from Wells Fargo with his market takeaways from the Fed decision. Let's get straight to the market and the Fed and the reaction we've seen. We saw stocks take a dip after the Fed statement at 2 p.m. After the Federal Reserve forecasts seven interest rate hikes this year. That's six on top of this one. Mike Santoli, then we climbed back during the Fed chair's commentary during his press conference. He was soothing when it came to talking about how strong the economy was and seemed a little flexible. He actually used the word nimble when it came to interest rate hikes. What do you make of the reaction? Yes, there was definitely lip service to being nimble. He did at one point say, obviously, that as the data come in, if they're different from their forecast, they will adjust. But I have to say, 
he basically walked right by multiple opportunities to seem more flexible or more dovish. So you do have that committee projection, a median of six more rate hikes, well, probably more than expected, but about what the market had already priced in. If I'm trying to read the market's mind, one, we're oversold. We're just going back to the morning highs, and you could always you know, count on some switchbacks even the day after a Fed meeting. So there's no final verdict on the market's view. Yield curve flattening significantly, basically feeling as if lots of rate hikes, maybe it's going to really slow down the economy and they don't necessarily believe they'll get all those hikes in. The final piece of it is the committee's projection for core inflation by the end of the year at 4.1 percent, yet still only six rate hikes. I think that suggested that, in fact, the, mar- the, the committee doesn't feel like it's going to have to chase inflation. It operates with a lag. It's basically maybe one per meeting, every meeting live, uh, but, but not necessarily looking more than that. And finally, he said the market's already done a lot of tightening for it. And that's what we've been talking about for weeks. I just want to point out some of the areas of the market that are doing best right now. The ARK Innovation ETF, which we know has been hammered by the fear of rising rates. It's up 9% right now, still 55% off its highs. The NASDAQ 100, it's up almost 3% right now, still 17% off its highs. But we are seeing a big move. Also in the China-related names, which have been hammered lately, Mike, Las Vegas Sands up 11%, Wynn Resorts up 7%. As we saw some relief in that market, I know we'll talk about that in a moment. Let's, let's hit the financials, though, because they are among the best-performing sectors right now, gaining steam after the first rate hike since 2018. Signals for more. Stephen Chuback covers the banks at Wolf Research. Stephen, what, what do you do with the banks after what we heard from the Fed? They're down this year about two and a half percent. Yeah, so thanks for having me on, Sarah. Um, look, in terms of the setup, banks are coming off a strong year in 2021. That outperformance has continued so far this year. I know they're down a little bit to start the year, but they're outperforming the broader market by a pretty wide margin. And that optimism is going to continue given the expectation around policy trajectory. Six hikes this year, three hikes next getting baked in. History tells you the banks, the overweight banks trade typically works through the first four or five rate hikes. But the banks typically lag thereafter, particularly in periods of persistently high inflation. You get the benefit of higher rates, but then the dark side of higher rates starts to trickle in, whether it's higher credit costs or weaker fee income in a slowing economy. So from our point of view, I'd say I'm comfortable being overweight the banks here uh, through at least the first three or four rate hikes. However, my preference is still to be long rate sensitive plays with limited credit exposure. And the best play on that are the names are actually up the most as we speak. Names like Schwab, LPL Financial and Morgan Stanley. Wealth management firms that just don't have a lot of credit exposure, but have significant asset sensitivity. Those are the best performing financials right now. As you mentioned it, Schwab up 6%, Morgan Stanley up 6%. Explain why. What's the linkage there with higher rates and why they would do better than, say, a Bank of America, which is typically mentioned as one of the biggest beneficiaries from higher interest rates and loans? Yeah, and, and look, Bank of America is certainly rate sensitive as well. But the challenge is, and you guys were talking about this on the program earlier, there's still recessionary risks that are steadily building, right? And persistently high inflation, concerns around yield curve inversion, all of these issues collectively suggest that recessionary risks are rising. And against that backdrop, you really want rate exposure, but names that also have much more resilient earnings profiles under stress. Charles Schwab is gonna benefit from increased volatility, their cash builds in periods where markets are declining, 
And so I could even make a case that their earnings will improve under greater stress. And other names like LPL and Morgan Stanley will see modest earnings pressure, but there are natural hedges or offsets in the model that really support being long those names while avoiding potential recessionary risks or pressures that we could that we could see in the traditional banks like B of A and JP Morgan. Do the banks need yields to continue to rise? We're, we're seeing it today. We've seen it lately, but it doesn't always happen so intuitively with the Fed raising rates, especially with some of the broader economic fears around global growth and, and even here in the U.S. Do, do, do we need that to work? Well, the, well, the good news, Sarah, is that where yields are today are well above the back books for these banks. So said differently, most of the banks reinvested in securities around 125 to 150 basis points. Those same proxies are now 100 basis points higher. But where yields are to me is less relevant in a vacuum. You really have to look at the shape of the yield curve. That's gonna matter far more. We, ha we are seeing some flattening today. Um, if we do end up seeing inversion at the twos, tens, that's where I'd be a little bit more concerned. That's where I'd lighten up a little bit more aggressively on some of these bank stocks. Stephen Schubach. Stephen, thank you very much. Mike, it's such a divergence in some of these, these bank performance so far year to date. You've got some names up, I don't know, 18 to 10 to 18 percent, and then some of the regionals in particular down for the year. What do you think of the strategy to go with the brokers on, on rising rates and hedge your risk there to recession or a weaker economy? It's the cleanest way to do it, right? You're just talking about customer balances. They earn the rates uh, on that, and, that, and that's the reason the stocks are moving. There's others in that general category, too, though, like the, the custody trust banks like Bank of New York, State Street, uh, Northern Trust are a little bit different. There's a wealth management and asset management component there uh, as well. But it, it is kind of the playbook. I, I did look back, though, in terms of general bank valuations at the start, the outset of the last tightening cycle, 2015, they were much cheaper then. Right. So the overall bank group uh, probably just isn't as cheap, therefore might not have quite as much leverage purely to the rate story as we, whether it's right or not, are talking about being in kind of a late cycle environment for the economy. Financials, the third best performing group right now. The other two are tech related, technology and consumer discretionary. Let's talk about that. The large cap names selling off briefly after that Fed announcement and then they bounce back like everything else. The Nasdaq just hitting session highs up more than 3% right now. Joining us now is Evercore head of internet research, Mark Mahaney, who's become Mark sort of an interest rate strategist because as Gary Cohn was just saying, it's not like the fundamentals of these companies have changed that much, but the valuations, boy, have they been whacked. So, so how do you interpret the Fed outlook as far as what it means for your coverage? Well, you're right, Sarah. This has been the most negative tape I've seen for growth equities since the end of 2018, and there was a similar setup uh, there. If we get a real conviction, confidence uh, in the rate um, of, um, of interest rate increases, then growth equities and tech stocks can work again. I don't know. That may require another Fed meeting um, uh, for that to, to for us the, the market to really gain confidence in that. So I'm going to be continue to be kind of defensive in a in a sector that really doesn't have a lot of defensive names. But I'm going to stick with the names like uh, Amazon and Google, the the two best, highest quality uh, uh, names in the in the space, and I can buy them on uh, sale. Particularly Amazon, because I think there's some wonderful fundamental catalysts for that name uh, later in the year. And then I also like what I call Venn diagram names. So those that are high quality and our clear recovery names. That's names like Expedia and, and Booking.com or Booking Holdings. That's a, it's a nerdy name for it. Mike, the, the mega cap tech names, they, they've been really hit. Right now, though, rallying. Meta is having a nice more than 4% 
move. Have, have investors distinguished between the defensive names that, that Mark likes, the quality names within technology, and some of the other growthier places? And where, where does that stand right now? Because there's a big catch-up right now. Yeah, I think... Mark's up 9%, as I mentioned. I think they have... Obviously, the market has made some distinctions in terms of, you know, who's outperformed on the downside more. Um, so Apple had held up pretty well. I think it's still kind of holding its own better than some of the mega cap names before. It is that kind of, you know, it's a balance sheet story. It's a stability story. Microsoft just had too good a run last year, I think, and so I have more to give back. But even at that, it's not really, uh, you know, in some kind of pronounced downtrend. So yes, there's distinctions, especially if you want to look at it against something like Meta. What I see going on today, though, is it's a, it's a bit of a, uh, a sign that investors felt underinvested going into a market that was going to be holding support, that was going to try to rally, that was going to feed off these oversold levels, and the areas that have been hard hit are getting the better benefit. It's really just the reciprocal math of hardest hit uh, getting the most upside today. So, Mark, and and those are probably the ones that you want to stay away from, ultimately, because you like the defensive names like Google, you said, and Amazon. What, What don't you like within your tech universe? Well, high multiple future growth, I'm sorry, high multiple future profit stocks are still going to be under pressure for a while. They'll have these big one-day bounces in an environment like this. I, I just don't know whether the bottom has really been put in on NASDAQ. And if I look at the, you know, the range of corrections that I've witnessed over the last, you know, couple of decades, this would be kind of a, uh, 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 this would be a relatively short correction. Uh, I could see it getting uh, steeper and I could see it lasting uh, longer. I hope that doesn't happen, but that's the that's what history seem, would seem to suggest. But at some point, you know, in the next couple of months, you get a chance to get into some of these growthier names that we like, names like Roku, uh, names like Spotify, names like Shopify too. But for now, those high multiple, especially Shopify, uh, then those high multiple future profit stocks, they're going to be um, hard to see having. We, we think it'll be hard to have sustainable gains. You know, the next uh, couple of months of the next year. Fine. If that's your investment horizon, I've got some great picks for you, but but not for the you, next three months. You brought, up, you brought it up, not me, but I was going to give you a little grief on Spotify because I know you've been pounding the table <laughs> on this name and it, it just has not been where the market is right now. That Those kind of stories. Uh, you're right. It's um, it's a company that's waiting for a gross margin catalyst. I think it's out there. I've been saying that for the year, for a year, and I haven't seen it yet. But I, I think the levers are out there, and specifically as they get more advertising revenue spend by our artists and labels, and as they start scaling up against all that podcast um, content that they've got on the site. To me, that's one of the best examples of a company that's under-earning. Spotify's gross margins in their ads business is like 10, 11, 12%. There's no other internet ad business that's got gross margins that low. That to me, they're either they're massively mis-executing or they're just extremely aggressively upfront investing in content. I think that's what's happening. So you'll see those gross margins work up and I want to be long the stock before that's clear to everybody else. All right, stick it, sticking with it. It's, it's been a painful one. It's yes. down 50% or so yes. in the last 12 months. Yes. Having an 8% move higher today. Mark Mahaney, thank you. On the tech theme, did want to mention the chip stocks. They are outperforming the broader tech sector right now, currently up about 4% or so. Micron is the, lead, is the leader here after getting an upgrade to outperform at Bernstein. The firm saying that while macro concerns have prompted a sell-off in the stock recently, Bernstein doesn't see the Russia-Ukraine conflict disrupting supply or demand for DRAM memory chips. NVIDIA, take a look, also moving higher after Wells Fargo added the stock to its signature picks on data center momentum and the potential for NVIDIA to expand its auto business. Are, are, are investors getting a good deal here with these chip stocks, Mike, that have been hurt lately on, on the concerns around everything from inflation to higher rates to, to Russia, Ukraine, Europe slowdown, all the above? 
a better deal, I think you can say. It remains to be seen if it, if it proves a good deal. I'll tell you, uh, Micron and NVIDIA, well off their highs. NVIDIA, 30% off its highs. The earnings forecast for this year are up for both companies since the beginning of 2022. So that tells you it's all been about reallocation uh, of equities out of growth. It's been about multiple compression and probably digestion of a really good couple of years coming in. So all that suggests, you know, uh, it's not the worst opportunistic call to say things look okay right here. I don't know what the right price to pay for an NVIDIA is, but over time, it's been certainly growing into a towering valuation. And now it's in kind of the 40 uh, times forward earnings range, which is, you know, way less of a nosebleed level that it's traded at, you know, in recent memory. NVIDIA up 6%, down 17 on the year. Take a look at the Chinese tech stocks like Alibaba, JD.com, Baidu. They're all surging today, more than 20%. After Beijing said it would support its stock market, the China Internet ETF is actually on pace for its best day ever, basically erasing all losses from the past week. But Christina Partzinevelos has been doing some digging on why, Christina, this might not be an all-clear for these names. It's an interesting move, what, just two days after J.P. Morgan called the group uninvestable? Yeah, and downgraded 28 separate companies. But you have the first time China's addressing this publicly, saying that they're going to support a lot of Chinese firms, but they're not really providing details as to how they're going to do that. And you talked about those stocks being high up, what, above 30 percent? But you look year to date, many of them are just all in the red. K-Web down 15 percent. So what are we still seeing? Regulatory risk. Of course, you have the SEC that still wants many of these U.S. Chinese listed firms to provide audits to back up their financial statements if they don't do so within the next three years they're delisted maybe they can work through that so a second risk would be the fact that gdp growth in china starting to slow down is it fully priced into these stocks the zero covid policy point number three if that lasts for more than more than a week we could potentially see a further sell-off because tech regardless gets lumped in in these chinese stocks and then you do have some concerns people say I mean, it's not true but the united states told nato that china was willing to uh, provide economic and military aid western sh- sanctions that could be a big question mark there could hurt the sector as a whole so there are still a lot of risks for this group despite uh, china Moving forward. Christina Partzinevelos. Got it. Thank you very much. Stocks broadly rallying here. The Nasdaq's up 3.5% almost into the close. Let's bring in Scott Wren, Wells Fargo Investment Institute, senior global market strategist. What did you take away from the Fed, Scott? Are you as enthusiastic and happy as the markets seem to be? Well, I tell you, Sarah, I thought you used the perfect word, which was soothing. And and I thought Jay Powell did a pretty good job. You know, in the past, uh, from time to time, he, he's, he's said a few things he probably shouldn't have, or the tone was, was maybe not all that great uh, for the market. But I think he was soothing. And I think that the market fully expected uh, the series of rate hikes. Obviously, the market expected the 25 basis points. Um, And you could tell the initial reaction when you look at the dot plot and basically, you know, more of their projections uh, were showing a greater magnitude out really out this year and for the next two years. And so, you know, I think that was why initially uh, the market pulled back and was negative very briefly. But but overall, I think, you know, he's right. Uh, labor market's great. Interest rates probably aren't going to go up. Let's say the yield on the 10 year, a whole heck of a lot higher than where uh, it, it is now. Consumer spending should be good. Uh, we lowered our GDP number uh, recently, but still it's over three percent. So I think there's a lot of good things going on. And having the Fed funds rate up higher, that's not going to kill the economy, I don't think. 
It, it, it says a lot, Scott, that, that you think it's soothing to hear that every meeting is a live meeting for interest rate hikes and that the Fed talks about significantly shrinking its balance sheet and, and that's okay with the markets. But I guess it speaks to how far the market has gone into has. pricing yep. all, all of this in. Do you trust if we, it, though? If we would like, have dumped that in on and the market. Tech? Uh, I, you know, I, th I think so. You know, uh, Sarah, you know that we've liked tech. Uh, clearly, tech has been an underperformer here. We like communication services. Uh, that's been an underperformer as well. But, uh, you know, we see good profitability there. It's been a relative underperformer. You know, we would call it an opportunity. So uh, I think you do need to take advantage of this. And one of your previous guests just said, you know, if your view's out more than 12 months, um, you know, th this is a good spot to buy. In, and we would agree with that. I mean, if your time frame's three months or six months, well, you know, what's what's Putin going to do next? I mean, we don't know, but that's probably going to affect the next three to six months. But when you look out 12, 24, 36 plus months, you have to take advantage of relative underperformance and just absolute underperformance. You know, we're 10% off the all-time record high. We haven't done that for a while. We've been a little bit lower. But, you know, for us, the market's going to be higher at the end of the year. Scott Wren, thank you for joining us with your first take. We've got a solid 2% gain here for the S&P 500. NASDAQ up 3.5%. Got about two minutes left to go in the trading day. Tenure yield, Mike, $218 weaker. What are you seeing in the internals? Yeah, it's been a very strong all day. So no real let up in the, in the internal strength of this rally today. It's not at that 90% upside volume threshold, which some people look for. But that is very heavy, absolute levels of volume. And you're looking at 5 to 1. Uh, it's not too bad uh, in terms of that ratio. So clearly uh, a pretty good thrust higher here. Uh, take a look at consumer discretionary on a week-to-day basis compared to health care. This is basically offense versus defense. And the offense has caught up week-to-date and overtaken just by a little bit. They leading defensive sector for this year, which is uh, which is healthcare. The volatility index actually sending a pretty positive message. It stayed above the 30 level for a couple of weeks, has cracked below it. Now we're under 27. The history of when the VIX stays above 30 for a while and comes back down is forward returns for equities tend to be good. So clearly the market uh, is, is able to rally against what I would argue was not really a soothing or dovish message from Jay Powell. I think he took every opportunity to see more resolute on inflation. He called the labor market tight to an unhealthy degree. So I actually think this shows you just how much the market was spring loaded to rally. And there's a little bit of a catch up. We're still need to prove it, though. Uh, 43.50 ish is right around that borderline of reflex bounce or something more to the upside, Sarah. I, I think it also, Mike, shows the pain trade is higher. That's here. the point. Exactly. Yes. All right. Let's let's show you what's happening into the bell. We've got just about a minute left to go. And the Dow is sharply higher up 488 points. Believe it or not, this is the third day in a row that the Dow is higher. We've now gone positive for the month of March. And it's our first three-day win streak for the Dow since back in February. S&P 500, higher, 2% gain there. A little more than that, 2.2. We're building into the close here. The only sectors that are negative are energy and utilities. Everybody else is up. Tech is in the lead. Financials are doing well. Materials are doing well. The cyclical groups, it's sort of an all-inclusive rally except for energy and utilities. That does it for me in closing bell. Thanks for being with us on the most important hour of trading. We'll see you tomorrow. Let's send it over to overtime. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. 
Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.